Meanwhile, back at the ranch, I don't know if you ever heard that phrase before, but it's based on the concept of old Western TV shows and movies. In the old Westerns, there often was, uh, there often were two basic scenes that would take place. The first would be a scene that would be enacted on a ranch. A pretty young widowed rancher's wife who was struggling to keep the ranch going. Outlaws or some unscrupulous businessman would come in and seek to take over the ranch. And then there would be a cowboy hero, someone like the Lone Ranger or Roy Rogers, who would be coming to their rescue. The suspense would lie in whether or not Roy Rogers would get to the ranch on time. And of course he did, but it was still supposed to be suspenseful. So there'd be a scene. You'd see the ranch. You would see the guns drawn. You'd see all the misery and the, and the heartache that this young widowed woman was experiencing. And then it would cut away and it would show Roy Rogers on horseback speeding to the ranch. And then it would cut back and you'd be back to the ranch again. And now she's bound and sitting in a chair. And it would go back and forth until finally the story comes to an end. Well, in our text this morning, we have the switching back and forth of scenes of what's taking place in the nation of Israel. In chapters 13 and 14, the emphasis has been on the events taking place in the northern kingdom. Today, the scene changes, and we get a glimpse of what's going on, meanwhile, back at the ranch. The events that are now taking place in the southern kingdom which is Judah, which are the tribes that are remaining faithful to God. We are given a glimpse of the narrative, uh, excuse me, we have gotten to a place in the narrative where from here on out, the storyline of the book of Kings switches back and forth between the events that were happening in the northern kingdom of Israel to the events that were happening to the southern kingdom of Israel. What is significant to understand is that in the north, you have an introduction of false worship and the effects upon the nation. Remember, Jeroboam has concocted a worship out of his own imagination of which he is selling the northern kingdom on and they are engaging in this false worship. In the south, you have the incredible corruption of the true worship of God. Now, this is not a false worship in the sense that it was totally concocted out of man. They're taking what is the true and right worship of God, but they're corrupting it. And it is no longer faithful to all that God has taught and, and all that he demands. And we see the effects and the outcome of that corrupted worship. And one might wonder, what is worse? What is worse? Is it the false worship of the north or is it this corrupted worship of the south? Well, in reality, they're both very bad and will eventually result in the people of God going into captivity. So today we want to focus on this corruption of worship and what we can learn from it in 1 Kings chapter 14. 
The first thing we want to note is the initial influence of the corruption of true worship. Rehoboam was negatively influenced by both his father and mother. In our text, we are reminded that Rehoboam is Solomon's son in verse 21. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. And it's been a little while, so we need to remind ourselves that Solomon had corrupted the worship of God as a result of marrying foreign wives. If you want to turn with me, let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 11 and review. 1 Kings chapter 11, reading at verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain near Jerusalem. So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So here is Solomon building these high places out of a desire to please his wives and also because they have influenced him negatively in his own personal walk with God. Now as we look at 1 Kings chapter 14 verse 21, we are told furthermore that Rehoboam's mother was an Ammonite. If you notice at the end of verse 21, uh, 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 excuse me, um, yes, 1 Kings 14, 21, last line. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite, the Ammonite. And remember, we had just read how Solomon had married foreign women, and one of the listings were the Ammonite women. And so here is his mother, an Ammonite, a a foreigner, a worshiper of foreign gods. And the fact that Rehoboam's mother was an Ammonite bookends our text. It's brought out again at the end of verse 31. 1 Kings 14, 31. Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. So it begins with Naamah the Ammonite and it ends with Naamah the Ammonite. Don't lose sight, the text is saying, of the fact that his mother is this Ammonite woman. It speaks volumes as to what is taking place in the heart and life of of Rehoboam. It is the influence that Solomon, in Solomon's own wandering from God, and 
then from Rehoboam's mother, who Solomon never should have married for a host of reasons, but who is this godless woman, she is influencing Rehoboam as well. So in application, we're to see the, core, the consequences of Solomon's actions upon the kingdom. Solomon's failure to stay faithful to God and to God alone, and in his marrying of this foreign woman and of the introduction of this false worship, has pronounced, has profound influence not only upon Rehoboam, but for the entire nation. We're to see that parents have a great influence over children. And if those parents are influential individuals they, with a lot of authority, they exercise a great influence over many. For we find out that Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord in keeping with Rehoboam's example and actions. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 1, it reads, When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. So it's talking about the influence that Rehoboam had. He forsook the law of the Lord, and when he did, he took the entire nation with him. They walked down the same road that he walked, which teaches us the importance of the spiritual leaders and the national leaders that we follow. They can take us in a right way or a wrong way, and Rehoboam certainly took them in a wrong way. So now we look at God's response to the corruption of worship. God's response to the corruption of worship. God did not accept the corrupted worship, for if you notice in verse 22, it characterizes it as evil. Verse 22, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judah did evil in keeping with Rehoboam's example and actions. Such worship was not pleasing to God. There is such a thing as unacceptable worship. I can't stress that enough. People have a tendency to think as long as you're worshiping, it doesn't matter who or what. It doesn't matter how you worship. As long as you're worshiping, as long as you're going to church, as long as you're saying prayers, as long as you are singing songs and hymns, as long as you're worshiping, God ought to be happy with that. God ought to be pleased with that. At least I went to church. No. God views this as evil. And further, God was hurt and angered by this corrupted worship. Verse 22. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And now this statement, and they provoked him, that is God, to jealousy with their sins that they committed. Philip Ryken in his commentary says this, and I quote, Jealousy has a bad reputation, but it has its proper place in protecting what a person loves. Some relationships are meant to be exclusive, such as the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. A husband ought to be protective of his wife's affections and vice versa. If a man is unfaithful to his wife, she has the right to be jealous. This is a virtue, not a vice. This is right. This is not wrong. 
that a person would be jealous if their spouse is unfaithful. We should expect our spouses to be faithful. We should expect them to do what is right. And if they go after and have an affair with someone else, it's a real affront. It's a slap in the face of the faithful spouse. They have been treated unfairly. They have not been appreciated and loved in the way that they should be appreciated and loved. So the comparison here is that Israel and God were to have a mutually exclusive relationship to each other. God was to be their God and they were to be his people. And repeatedly in the Old Testament, this relationship, this covenantal bond between Israel and their God is viewed as a marriage. For example, Isaiah 54, verse 6, For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth, when she's cast off, says your God. So God has reached out and entered into a covenantal relationship like unto a marriage covenant of faithfulness. God would be faithful to Israel, and he was. God was every bit that God said he would be. God did what God said he would do. God acted as he said he would act. God demonstrated his concern, his protection, his love, his care for the nation of Israel. Every bit the way that he did, he kept his vows. And how does Israel respond to this faithful God? By cheating on him, as it were. By going after other gods and worshiping them. And so God becomes jealous. Jealous is a good word. For it conveys the idea of being hurt and being angered. That was God's response to the unfaithfulness of Israel. I want us to look at the characteristics of this corrupted worship to help to understand it better, what it consisted of. Well, first we find out that corrupted worship is man-centered. If you look at verse 23, it says, For they also built for, and then this word is extremely important, themselves. For they also built for themselves high places. Key word is themselves. This stands in stark contrast to the way in which the building of the temple is depicted. Remember, Solomon builds a house. And in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 2, it says, The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The temple was built for the Lord. These high places, these, these shrines, these places of worship were not built for the Lord. They were built for themselves. The temple had God in view. These shrines didn't have God in view. It had themselves in view. What they desired, what they wanted, not what God desired and what God wanted. 
we know some of what motivated such kind of worship. It's not exhaustive by any means, but, but we know elements. For example, in the book of Hosea, chapter 4, verse 13, it reads this, they sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth. Then it says this, because their shade is good. Because their shade is good. It was more pleasant. These high places were literally that. They, they were places that were elevated. And it would get extremely hot in Jerusalem. And can you imagine what it must have been like to worship in the temple in a very hot day and you have all the fires going and you have the sacrifices being made and, and you have a large crowd gathering and there's no such thing as, as uh, air conditioning, there's no such thing as air moving uh, through fans or uh, some other man-made concoction. I mean, it would have been coming extremely hot. How much more pleasant to go to the high places under some beautiful shade tree and worship there. And so, out of a desire to make worship more pleasurable, they would build these high places. These high places. Well, you see, there is a tendency all too often for people to evaluate worship in terms of what they like or dislike, as opposed to what God wants or demands. It's easy to develop a concept that worship is for us. It is where I come, where I am benefited, where I am helped, where I am encouraged, where I am strengthened, where I am benefited. And if there isn't anything in it for me, then I, I wonder about the value of worship. If I haven't been affected, then what good is worship? And it really does come about the individual. It's not even about God. It's not even about others. It's not that I am going to worship in order to meet the living and true God. I'm going to worship to hear from Him and Find out how I'm to live. I'm going to worship to minister to my brother and sister in Christ. I'm going to help to meet their needs. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to help them. I'm going to bless them. No, it's about me. And I get upset if they haven't ministered to me, if they haven't talked to me, if they haven't helped me, if my needs have not been met. That is at the heart of what corrupts worship. It becomes man-centered as opposed to God-centered. In corrupt worship, we find that people rebuild what previously they had torn down. If you look at verse 1 Kings 14, 23, it says, for they also built for themselves. And I'm looking at this phrase, they also built. Interestingly enough, previously, the Israelites had torn down the very 
kinds of places that they were now building. The very kind of worship that they were now engaging in, they once destroyed. They had to build these things because they were not in existence. And the reason they were not in existence is because they had torn them down. In Deuteronomy, if you just listen, it says this, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names out of this place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. And they had. They had torn down all those things. And now... They are building back the very things, the very things that they had once destroyed because God had commanded them to do so. Notice in verse 23, for they built also for themselves high places, pillars, ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. It's almost a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 12 of the very things that they were to destroy. Well, they had destroyed them. But now... They build them back. They build them back. How sad it is when people begin to rebuild the evil that they once had torn down. When people revert back in their lifestyle that is similar to how they lived before they were saved, as opposed to the changes that have been brought in their life after they were converted. When people go back and live as they had before, when this worship has regressed as opposed to progress, this corrupted worship was widespread. It caught on quickly in verse 23. Where it says they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram. And now this phrase, on every hill and under every green tree. These weren't just isolated pockets of corrupted worship in Israel. This became normative. This, this spread, as I said, like wildfire. This took off. And this corrupted worship was being found everywhere. Everywhere. The quickness in which this all took place is rather mind-boggling. So you think within two generations, to think that Solomon began this and his son continues it, and by the time of the end of Rehoboam's existence, this is what characterizes worship in Israel. It has so changed so quickly. You know, true worship can be lost in one generation. 
Faithfulness to God can be lost in one generation. It's amazing how worship can change. It's amazing how a church can change. It's amazing how a people can change. How quickly it all happens. And then we find out that this corrupted worship was characterized by sexual permissiveness and perversion. Sexual permissiveness and perversion. 1 Kings 14, 23. For they also built for themselves high places, and now these words, pillars and ashram, pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. Okay. Now, I want to be careful. I want us, I'm very, very conscious of the diversity of our gathering this morning and ages, et cetera, et cetera, but there's some things that you've just got to understand. And you need to realize when, when you read this word pillar, it's describing, it's depicting the male genitals. These, these pillars that were erected were intended to symbolize the male genitals. The ashram were idols of a woman, Asherah. Asherah was the goddess. The ashram were the idols that were made in supposedly the image of this naked female goddess. This is the picture of the idols that were established. And not only had they established these kinds of visual representations, but then we find out that in verse 24, and there was also male cult prostitutes in the land. All right, So there were all kinds of perversions. There, there was sexual activity that was associated with this worship. For Asherah was a god of fertility. Asherah was seen as, as the one that would, that would prosper their crops and, and benefit them in, in terms of their uh, agricultural um, success. And so they would engage in acts of sex to portray the importance of this fertility. It was just a way of expressing themselves, giving vent to their desires, giving vent to their passions that were sinful, but somehow could be affirmed. Somehow what God had said was wrong actually became right. Scripture says, woe unto those who call good evil and evil good. But that's what happens when worship is corrupted. What God says is wrong somehow actually becomes not only accepted, but good. And what once was universally rejected now becomes accepted. And certainly you can see that in the aspects of sexual mores and values. Everything from living together to types of sexual partners to operations, you name it. I don't need to go there with you. You can ponder it, but it just shows how 
True worship can be so corrupted that once was not accepted is not only now accepted, but celebrated. Celebrated. We find in the scriptures that unfaithfulness to God leads to unfaithfulness in other relationships as well. That we're, we're to see that there's a correlation. That the worship of God promotes restraint. The worship of God promotes discipline. He has rules, he has statutes, he has laws which the worshipers of God want to follow. But when you throw off those restraints, when you throw off the authority of God, then you throw off the authority of mankind as well. When you aren't worried about violating a holy and righteous and just God, then you're not worried about violating your marriage vows either. Let me read to you the concluding statement of Hosea 4.13. I stopped in the middle. It says this. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains, burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. It's now taking what was earlier in Hosea as a spiritual metaphor of adultery between the worshipers of God and God. They were committing spiritual adultery against God. The book ends with those that were committing spiritual adultery are now actually committing physical adultery. That this had progressed to a place where all restraints are gone. This was characterizing Judah, and God was angered. Number four, through corrupted worship, the people of God lose their distinctiveness. Through the worship of God, excuse me, through corrupted worship, the people of God lose their distinctiveness. Verse 24. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. Now this statement, they did according to all the, all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. They did according to all the abominations of the nations. If you have a good memory, uh, a couple weeks ago, I spoke on the characteristics of false worship. And I gave you seven characteristics of false worship. And one of them was this. False worship mimics true worship. False worship mimics true worship. And we talked about how the, the day was established so that it would look like the, the day, the festival that they were used to celebrating in the time of Jeroboam. Well, now we find something different. For we had mentioned that in the north, Jeroboam had established a false worship that looked like a true worship. In the south, they took a true worship and changed it to mimic the false worship of the nations round about them. It says they did according to the abominations of the nations. 
that they were acting like all the nations around about them. They had adopted the same kind of practice. The very things they had destroyed, they were now doing. They were not any different than Egypt. They were no different than the Ammonites. They were no different than the Moabites. They were no different than anyone. They were just like them. Just like them. They had lost any distinctiveness in their morality, in their allegiance, in their faithfulness. So Israel lost her distinctiveness and became like the nations round about them. And of course, the application is when worship is corrupted, the church loses its distinctiveness. If we corrupt our worship, we become like everyone around us. We come just like our neighbors. We, we become just like society as a whole. There's no real difference in lifestyle. There's no real difference in conviction. There's no real difference in the way in which we manifest our allegiance to God. We become like the world, as it were. And God's displeasure of this worship should have been readily understood. That They should have understood what they were doing and the response that it would have. For, of course, God had warned them in other portions of Scripture, but we're keeping our thought on verse 24. And it says, And there were also male cult, uh, cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to the abominations of the nations, and now this statement that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. They were doing like the people that they had driven out. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God says that he's giving the land to the children of Israel because of the sin of the Canaanites. Because it had risen to such an extent that God would not tolerate it any longer, and God drove out the Canaanites and gave the land to the nation of Israel. And now this verse teaches us that they are doing the very, very same things of the people that they had driven out. They were just like the Canaanites before the Israels had, Israel had arrived. And so that statement becomes an incredibly loaded statement that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. It shows three things. First, the foolishness of false worship. For the gods that the Canaanites worship couldn't deliver the Canaanites. The gods that the Canaanites worshipped had resulted in a perverseness that, that was repulsive to the people of God. 
And now, they're going back and worshiping the very same gods that they knew could not deliver, that they knew could not protect, and they knew brought corruption. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. The second lesson, God's driving them out. That is, God driving out the other nations should be a foreshadowing of what would befall Judah. For God had warned, if you were unfaithful, that he would he would dispossess them of the land. If God would not tolerate the worship of pagans, how much more would God not tolerate the worship among his own people? If God is going to find fault with those that don't belong to him, how much more grievous was it for his own people to behaving in the way in which he had condemned and driven out? And if God is going to bring judgment against the people of Cana, how much more is God going to bring judgment against his own people and drive them out of the land just as? Just as he drove out the Canaanites. We've got a long way to go in the book of Kings. We've got a lot of kings to go through. For God is long-suffering and God is patient. But, you know, here's the, here's the music playing in the back. You know how there's that dramatic music? That, that foreshadows that something ominous is about to happen? Well, the music is starting to play right here, right at the very beginning. Before Jerusalem ever falls, before the Babylonian captivity ever takes place, before we have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, before we have all of those events, you have this statement of how the Lord drove out these nations. And that's what's going to happen to Israel. But it's going to take time. Fifth, when God is dishonored, people bring dishonor to themselves. The effects of corrupted worship are often very slow developing. For God is gracious, God is kind, God is long-suffering. But we find out that God was dishonored through this plundering of the temple. If you look at 1 Kings 14, 25, it says, In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. Now, if you read the account in Chronicles, which is a longer account, and the, the account in Chronicles goes into some details that we are not given here. And in some ways, I, I hate to mention it because 
we're to focus on what's in our text, and it will lead us astray a little bit if, if we get too caught up. But what I want to say is if you read the, the Chronicles passage, you will find that, that Rehoboam exercises a measure of repentance. And the key word there is a measure of repentance. And God is gracious. And God is gracious. Because Shishak is going to come against the city with the intent of destroying it. But God doesn't allow the city to be destroyed. He, he just won't go there yet. <laughs> you know, God in his discipline is kind. God in his discipline is good. I, I'm reminded of Psalm 32 that says that the Lord will guide us with his eye. And his hand was heavy upon me, David says, when he was unrepentant. You know, just a look, a look. My dad would give me a look, and I knew that I'd better shape up or I was going to be in for trouble. I gave the illustration in the past when I'd be sitting you know, next to my father as, as a child and I wasn't behaving as I should and he put his hand on my leg. And uh, if I was wise, I, I stopped. And if I didn't, he'd just start to squeeze. And he kept squeezing until I stopped. God guides with his hand. God guides with his hand. God pleads with his people to repent and to be faithful to him. And here is God saying that they were worthy to be destroyed and worthy to be driven out. And yet, he doesn't allow it to happen. And he tells us that one of the reasons he doesn't is because of David's sake. Because of his promises that he made to David. God is good. God is faithful. God... God is glorious. So he doesn't allow the nation to fall. But he allows that Rehoboam will be able to buy Shishak off, that he'll be able to give him tribute instead of destroying, and that satisfies him. 1 Kings 14, 25 and 26 in the fifth year, King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He took away everything. All the gold of the temple, he took it. But Rehoboam gave it over. Rehoboam said, here, <laughs> take it. Just spare us. You can have it. He dishonored God and failing to trust God in the way that he should. And he said, here, take it. And we find in verse 26, he took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. Rehoboam was dishonored through the kingdom's shadow of its former glory. Rehoboam is now ruling over Two tribes, when there are 12. Okay. There are 12 tribes. He's ruling over just two. He's got two tribes left. But he's got the temple. He's got Jerusalem. He's got the prime real estate. 
But now he's got a temple that is devoid of all of its gold, all of its majesty. Remember that just one generation ago, just, just years earlier, I think it's 17, but I don't know that for, for sure off the top of my head, but very, very brief time. 1 Kings 10.21, And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. Think how wealthy Israel was. Just think of what they had. That Solomon didn't have anything that was made of silver. For it was considered as, as, as nothing. That, that silver, that, that doesn't mean anything. Everything was of gold. These shields are made of bronze. They're made of bronze. Because the gold shields were passed. And now Shishak has the gold shields. He doesn't even have the silver to make shields. He's got bronze. He's got bronze. He ought to see how when he was dishonored, when God was dishonored, now he brings dishonor to himself. Peace and prosperity characterized the kingdom in Solomon's day. The same could not be said of Rehoboam. Now, it is hardship and it is war. There was a summary statement in 1 Kings chapter 14, 29 to 31. It says this, Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naam the Ammonite, and Abijam his son reigned in his place. Philip uh, Riken says this in this commentary, and I quote, The Bible is not very interested in what the kings of Judah and Israel built or the size of their economies or other details of their political history. The Bible's main interest is their faithfulness to God. Even when other subjects are discussed, the battles and the building projects, the Bible's primary concern is always personal godliness, end quote. I think that's a great summary statement. Chronicles tells us more about the ongoings of what was built at this time and, and what was happening, all of which is left out in 1 Kings for it's to show what is really important. What's really important? What makes the difference? It's not the building projects. It's not even the wars. It's whether or not a people are faithful to God. That really determines what's going to happen next. That, that really is the source of a person's true worth and godliness. This morning, we heard in Sunday school that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us. 
He wasn't seeking the kingdom first. He, he wasn't putting God first. And you see, the sad thing is that he thought he was making life better. He thought he was making the kingdom more secure. He thought that it would be more pleasurable by throwing off the shackles and just engaging in all this permissiveness and perversion. He wasn't making life better. He was making life worse. He wasn't making his kingdom more secure. He was making the kingdom insecure. For he was failing to trust God the way that he needed to trust God. We must constantly be aware of the lie, aware of the influence of the nations around about us, the influence of an ungodly world who keeps telling us that in order to be secure, we need to do certain things. In order to prosper, we need to do certain things. And unfortunately, so many people think that the way for the church to go forward is compromise. The way for the church to go forward is to tolerate. The way for the church to go forward is to be like the nations. rather than trust wholly in God. And let me just give you one simple, what I think is a powerful example. Some of you are not old enough to really remember Billy Graham. But Billy Graham had a tremendous, powerful, influence in our nation. There's a, a book written about Billy Graham and the presidents. For the presidents, plural, of the United States would often invite Billy Graham to the White House and have them pray with them and give them counsel. On the night on the night of Desert Storm, of shock and awe, when there was just this incredible demonstration of war, Billy Graham was at the White House with President Bush, invited there. Billy Graham's influence was totally through the Crusades. It was through the preaching of the gospel. And there were so many people that were saved, there were so many people that were converted, there were so many changes that took place in people's lives that it had an effect on the church, on the nation, and even our government. He never entered into a political system. <laughs> he wasn't pushing candidates. He was pushing the gospel.
we need to be careful that we remember that we war, our warfare, warfare is not like the world's. We'll get to that in Ephesians on Sunday nights. But let me just say, never lose confidence in the gospel. Never change direction or course. As a people of God, our confidence is in God's word, in God's spirit, in God moving. And his work will be done. And we can have an influence. An influence that the world says you can't have. But we actually can look historically and see, you know, it's really true. Billy Graham had an incredible, incredible impact and influence in this world. And our generation has taken a completely different course. May we be careful. May we guard. May we not corrupt true worship by becoming like the people around us. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us. Help us to do what is pleasing and honoring and glorifying in your sight. Guard us in our worship of you that it's not about us, it's about you. It's not about what pleases us, it's about what pleases you. And Lord, help us to realize our security is in you. We cannot improve upon you. We cannot improve upon your word. We can adopt better tactics than what you have laid out for us. Oh, Lord, may our confidence always, always, always be in you. Guard our hearts. Keep us by your grace. Help us to influence this world through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to know that as people come to faith and trust in you, lives change. And when lives change, society changes. And when society changes, there's more peace, there's more prosperity, there's more of the goodness that everyone wants. Oh Lord, help us to see it's found in you and you alone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.